Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Countries around the world struggle to achieve sustainable futures, and in India, waste is an important and visible issue. A reported 60% of plastics, for example, are recycled, but the volume of garbage is immense and much of the industry is informal. Here to discuss the issue of reuse and recycling in India is Associate Professor Asa Doran from the College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University. Thank you for joining me, Asa. Thank you very much for having me. So how important is the practice of recycling in India, not just to the country's economy, I suppose, but also to its, its culture? Well, I guess the practice of recycling goes back a long way. And even from my own uh, memories from the early 1990s in India, you, you could still hear the rag and bone man or the kabariwala, he's called in North India, other names in other places, where a person comes on the bicycle or is walking along the streets and just shouts kabari, kabari or kabar and asks for people to bring out the materials that they're willing to exchange for whether it is for barter for different pots and pans or he might purchase it whether it's old newspapers and magazines glass bottles old cricket bats my friends were telling me they used to bring to the kabari wall they would take everything that you have everything that you accumulated over the weeks and months and especially the kabariwalas would clean out India during the Diwali years, the, the Diwali days, this, the holiday in India where people clean their houses and get rid of all the unnecessary stuff. And then the kabari would then sell it up the chain of recycling where he could make some kind of marginal profits from the recyclables. Mm. So this is the tradition that is still actually evident, and you see it in India today, of the kabariwala in the streets. How important is it to the recycling trade in India now? Is that how recycling is primarily operated? Well, India is growing. The population has grown immensely. The population density, it's urbanizing. People are consuming far more. You know, there is many more items and consumer items that are being brought into India. And so the amount that is excreted, if you will, from the uh, society today is much more than the old Kabariwala can handle. And a lot of that ends up in the informal markets in India, where you have people who are dealing with whether it's the most contemporary goods, white goods, electronic goods, to the more hazardous and toxic medical waste, metals. And these are very much segregated according to the type of material that is uh, being recycled. Mm. But when we have goods that have multiple materials, it becomes a bit more difficult. And so a lot of people engage in different burning techniques, pulverizing, cooking, especially with electronic waste. People are cooking it in acid in order to extract whatever valuable materials you can from it. That is gold, silver, copper. And it all happens in these informal markets with very little supervision. And it's often a very dangerous kind of work. Mm. So you know, reducing these to their original elemental components by the sounds of it, and it's all very manual. 
Is that right? It is very manual and it is very dangerous because a lot of this work is done without the protection of gloves or masks on your mouth or even uh, ear guards. So that, for example, in a place where I visited called Muradabad, which used to be the brass capital of India in the state of Uttar Pradesh, that is one of the hubs for recycling the electronic waste that is offshored from first world countries to India and now with the immense consumer society, consumer items that are coming. Also, a lot of this electronic waste is coming from India itself. And families living together in very small areas, slums, are engaged in recycling. And as you could constantly hear the beating and the noises that come from those little hamlets where they do that. Of course, because they're so contained, there's a lot of smoke and uh, people inhale all these toxic fumes. So it's a very dangerous economy in many ways. Mm. And who is doing this work? Is it primarily lower caste? It's primarily people of lower caste and lower class. Yeah. So the recycling and the waste collection industry is one that, at least in the bottom of the waste pyramid, is dominated by these impoverished communities. And they belong to untouchable castes or low castes who are considered both ritually polluted, but because of their occupational designation is dealing with this kind of tainted materials, these second-hand, third-hand materials. This is a kind of a vicious cycle where their occupation is validated by their ritual pollution. And children as well, isn't there? Like I said, it's a family endeavor. I mean, different family members contribute in different ways to the household economy. So children might not have the strength to uh, dissemble some of these uh, recyclings, but they will go and collect it from different open dumps. They will use the dexterity to um, pick out the valuable materials from the recyclables. Mm. And so they're very much part of that economy. Yeah. And there's an ability, a practice of finding the value in anything that you can. So I found hair a very interesting section of of this chapter of your book. So can you tell me about the hair trade in India? I discovered the hair trade when I was walking alongside these scavengers that go around on their daily rounds to pick up whatever consumer uh, goods they can find that's been thrown away from henna bottles to cassette tapes, uh, shoes, broken shoes, and of course, plastic bottles, paper, Mm -hmm. bags, what have you. In the middle of the day, when they um, took out the bag where they collected all the materials accumulated throughout the day, I saw that they were picking out this kind of black material, these black strands of hair, which I didn't notice as I was walking along with them, that were kind of wrangled within the the recyclables and they put it in a separate box and that was the hair hair that they picked out from the rubbish or hair that they managed to find in the gutters or hair that was actually embroiled in that in all these different uh, materials these are brushings of women's hair this is a hair that is being chucked away or being thrown away on daily basis by these rituals of grooming that we all are implicated in but what was interesting is that Indian hair itself is considered quite prized in the global markets. And once they wash this hair in their slum, accumulated enough of it, whether it's half a kilo or a kilo, 
these kids would go to a wholesaler and sell that hair for whether it would be $10 or $20, depending on the amount. And when I continued along the chain, the hair chain, as it were, I realized that many people do that, whether they're specialized in it as the wholesalers or whether it's a side business, and the hair itself moves along the chain to different levels of hair dealers and hair recyclers to the degree that at one end, at the top end, I met the king of hair in India. Is, in is that a title that he's given? Not a formal title, of course, but does he call himself the king of hair? He didn't call himself, but others called him others, the king of hair. Y- you never call yourself the king of hair. No, <laughs> no. He's from a, a low-caste community. He started with the hair business in the 60s, uh, but it, then it flopped because of uh, low demand. And now he's, it's very much on the rise again. And when I asked him how many people he employs, he said hundreds of thousands. And what he was meaning is not employ formally, but all these people that channel the hair up the chain, and much of which ends up in his factories, which are classic kind of 40 and capitalist factories where hair is being cleaned, measured, calculated, weighed, packaged, and exported to various places in the world, especially China. And I'm talking about the waste hair, especially China and Africa for wigs and hair extensions. Now, he told me that he exports 60 tons of hair per month. Yeah. He even received a distinguished prize from the president of India. I think it was in 2015. He has a website. You can check it out. His name is Mr. Sholanki. The hair king. Yes. Wow. And were you surprised that that was such a big industry? Or is this typical for India's recycling? Well, I knew about the hair industry and how profitable it is, especially in the south, in Indian temples, in Tirumala or Tirupati, where hair is being shorn by barbers before they come into this temple precinct. So this is a very lucrative business for many decades now. Mm. And it's a multi-million dollar business. But that is what we call temple hair. It's not waste hair per se. It's people who come to the temple and make a wish from the gods. And in order to be pure and clean and demonstrate their piety, they shave their hairs in these large barber holes. And many of these uh, women that come are from rural India. Their hair is never bleached, you know, is washed with coconut oil and so on. So it's it's considered very pure hair. And so it fetches very high prices in the world markets, as opposed to the waste hair, which is designated more for the wig industry or for entertainment industry and so on. Temple hair is one that is um, prestigious and it, it's used especially for hair extension very prized wigs in different places in the world. They operate a website and there's bidding for that hair, isn't there? And what's interesting is not only is there bidding, I mean, in the past it was bidding like in regular auctions, face-to-face auctions. Now the bidding for the lucrative temple hair is in e-auctions. It's been contracted to the scrap industry, which is doing this bidding mm. for them, the e-auctioning across the world. And that temple, that temple principle, is, is, I think it's the the second most wealthy temple in the world after the Vatican, if you want to call the Vatican a temple. So dealing with your own country's waste problem and picking up waste on the street and recycling it that way is just one aspect of recycling. What 
role does India play in the global waste industry? I imagine there's a lot of money to be made from first world countries shipping their waste problems to India and dealing with recycling on that level. Yeah, well, India in many ways is the receptacle of waste for our toxic waste in the first world. At the time, the president of the World Bank, uh, I think his name was Larry Summers, in the 1990s, thought it would be a win-win situation to offshore the toxic waste in the U.S. and other countries to third world countries because, well, they have the labor power, cheap labor, and the space to receive that waste. We can purge ourselves of that toxic material and keep first world countries clean. Now, we know that this was not the case, and not only was it imperialist notions of waste and offshoring, but we also know that two key elements in waste are space and movement. You have to have space to bring in the waste, and you have to move it quite quickly in order to establish or in order to gain value from waste. For example, China is now banned the importing of waste, And all these countries are choking in their own waste. You have these bottlenecks, both in Europe and the US and Australia, Mm. which are unable to offshore their waste to these places. So while it is a very clandestine industry, what I suspect is that India is receiving, as a result of the Chinese ban, much more waste than before, likewise with the African countries. Mm. And how are they processing this in India? Is there the capacity to manage it, to recycle, or is this just going to landfill? Again, the figures are very difficult to get, but much of the waste in India, the majority of waste, is in processed in the informal markets, by which I mean these places that are unregulated without any supervision or protection or guidance. It also means that these people are vulnerable to exploitation. Mm. For example, there's these garbage mafias, people with power and politics that uh, would uh, profit much more from this illicit waste industry. Is recycling in India an economically healthy industry? I'm curious as to what recent demonetization effects would have had on India's recycling industry and... uh, a GST that was imposed. Some curious anecdote is that with demonetization, a lot of the currency, of course, came out of use and they had to do something with that currency. Oh, just the physical dollar notes and everything. Yeah, rupees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that was labeled by the government as a positive outcome of this, (laughs) because it was such a disastrous move by the government, is that these wads of currency could be turned into bricks, whether it was bricks for burning, for the kilim, or whether it was bricks for uh, the construction industries. That's really scraping the, the positivity, Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the GST is something that's important to bear in mind because it has implications. India recently implemented a GST on goods in India, goods and services, and that had a different levels in which things would be taxed at. Now... Even in the recycling industry, that's supposed to be the green industry, many of these consumer items of recyclabilia were taxed, which meant that the profit margins for those who are recycling diminished, so that it discouraged people from recycling, and especially from recycling to different items. It actually encouraged taking everything to the landfill, to the open dumps, because there was no profit margins in it. And the irony is that Religious items were not taxed. So, for example, the huge air industry, the temple hair, 
was not taxed. Mm. It continued mm. to work unaffected by these taxes. But plastics, glass, medical waste, and others, all of these were taxed, which meant that the people at the lower end of the um, waste pyramid had to suffer the consequences of this uh, new taxation system. Does it concern you that this could maybe lead to something of a collapse or a downturn in the recycling industry? Well, the reports that I heard or read about is that, yes, it is affecting the recycling industry and that people are concerned. But because it's just been rolled out recently, this whole uh, taxation system, they're still tweaking it. The government is still tweaking it to see what it can do to ensure that it doesn't affect it as much. And I just hope that they are hearing these complaints and they are heeding to the demands of the recycling industry. After all, I think it's in the benefit and the interest of everyone that uh, recycling is promoted and things are siphoned out of the landfills and a value is extracted. And the recycling initiatives in the informal sector must be an integral part of the Clean India campaign as well, and that's something that the government really wants to succeed. It does. It's a tricky one again, because what does informal market mean? Mm. What are the relations between the informal and the formal markets? If you want to make sure that the country and the people pay tax, and this tax is funneled to infrastructures and other so-called public goods, it's difficult to really uh, say how this will pan out and how these people will engage with the tax system, especially since we've already said the majority of waste in India ends up in these informal markets. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, should the government be playing more of a formal role? Informal industry is one thing. Uh, People making their livelihoods off it is is very important, I suppose. But at some point, the government has an obligation to set up recycling programs, sell their waste offshore, I suppose. You know, garbage trucks, the sort of formal industry. Yeah, I mean, how can you formalize? How can you recognize? And how can you ensure that there is a continuity and follow-up in uh, both the waste and sanitation. That is something that the municipal authority, the decentralized municipal authority has charged with. It is their responsibility. These authorities, these local authorities, are underpowered and under-resourced. And if a Clean India campaign is to succeed, it needs to harness and encourage and promote these local authority alongside civil society, the hundreds of thousands of NGOs, non-government organizations, and the people on the ground, the recyclers, the waste pickers, and bring them together in order to ensure that a clean India succeeds. Well, thank you for your time today, Asa. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and please leave a review. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. You can follow Asa Doran on Twitter as well. He's at Asa Doran. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.